Good morning. Well, as you know, we're in a study of the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 6. And so far in this chapter, Jesus has performed two miracles. He fed the 5,000 at the beginning of the chapter. And it's really a feeding of more like ten to 20,000 because the 5,000 is just a count of the men. When you add women and children, it's more like 10, 15, 20,000. And it's the one miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels other than the resurrection, of course. In the miracle of the feeding 5,000, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus took five loaves of bread, five barley loaves, and two fish from the little boy, the little boy who gave them to Jesus. And Jesus multiplied them to feed 10 to 20,000. It's an incredible miracle, right? We just think, oh, it's a bunch of food. No, don't just think that, like that. It's an incredible miracle. It's a miracle that the people saw, that the people touched, that the people smelled, that the people tasted, that the people ate, a miracle that they digested. It's a great supernatural miracle. And Jesus did that miracle to show them that He is the provider of our physical sustenance. The second miracle that we've seen so far in chapter 6 is the miracle of Jesus walking on water, which is really a five-part miracle. That's just one of the five parts. Remember in that miracle, Jesus supernaturally sees the disciples in the middle of a storm three to four miles away on the Sea of Galilee. He's on the land. He's on a mountain praying, and he sees them in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm from three to four miles away, the text says, miracle number one, because there were no infrared goggles back then, right? Miracle number one. Miracle number two, he walks on the water while the disciples are frantically rowing in the middle of the storm. Actually, they're rowing into the winds. They look over, and there's a man walking on the water next to them. It's Jesus, second part of the miracle. Third part of the miracle, Jesus calls Peter out of the boat to walk on the water towards Jesus. Peter gets scared, Peter sinks, Jesus helps him up. The next part of the miracle is that when Jesus got in the, in the boat, the winds, the storms, gone. His presence stilled the storm. The final part of the miracle, the fifth and final part, is that he took a boat that's full of passengers in the middle of the lake and supernaturally, I prefer the word teleport. He transported it. He teleported it from the middle of the lake, which is about three to four miles from the shoreline, instantaneously. That's the second miracle that we've seen, that five-part miracle with respect to Jesus walking on the water. But that miracle was a private miracle. Because only the disciples saw it. The crowd didn't see that miracle. Today, Jesus is going to show us again that He's the provider. The, the feeding of the 5,000 shows that Jesus is the provider of our physical sustenance. The miracle, the five-part miracle that evening on the Sea of Galilee shows that Jesus is the provider of our physical security. Today, He's going to show that He's the provider, but He's not going to do any miracles. He's not going to show that he's the provider through his works, which is what he's done so far in chapter 6. Now he's going to show it through his 
words. We're going to see that Jesus is the provider of our spiritual sustenance, spiritual life. And like in the prior chapter, chapter 5, this chapter begins with a miracle. Chapter 5, remember, it began with Jesus healing the paralytic, the man who had been paralyzed almost 40 years. And Jesus says, pick up your pallet and get up. Like that. 40 years of paralysis, gone. No physical therapy, no medication, no nothing. Gone, immediately. That's how chapter 5 began. And then Jesus used that miracle in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 5 to set the stage for a teaching moment so that he could repeat at least 10 times that he is God in the flesh. He made at least 10 claims to deity in chapter 5 because he took the miracle to create the stage of a teaching moment. Then he taught the, the religious leaders who were very angry that he claimed equality with God. He taught his deity 10 times. Chapter 6, we're getting the similar, a similar model in the sense he begins the chapter with a miracle, in this case two miracles, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water. And he does that to set the stage for a teaching moment so that he can challenge, so that he can first expose the people's unbelief, just like he did in chapter 5, and then challenge them to submit to him. But remember, the only thing that the people know, that the crowd knows, is the feeding of the 5,000. They don't know about the walking of the water. Before we see Jesus' teaching in chapter 6, we get some historical background. So in verse 22, we read this. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? What's going on here? What's this setting here? What's happening is Jesus has incredible popularity. He is super, super popular with the people. Everybody wants to come see Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Everybody wants to come see Jesus. Come see Jesus. For the wrong reason, which we'll get to in a moment, but he's very popular. There are two seeker groups that we're seeing here in this, these few verses. Seeker group number one, as you can see on the screen, is near the area of Bethsaida. That's where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happened. That's on the northeast coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is the group, seeker group number one, is the group that saw Jesus feed the 5,000. Some of them went home. Some of them stayed in that area. But that's the group that we're talking about. After Jesus fed them, he sent his disciples. Remember, the text said he compelled his disciples. If you look at the, the, counter, the, uh, the parallel passages in other Gospels <clears throat> of the walking on water, he compelled his disciples to get in the boat. He feeds the 5,000 in the afternoon of the day before verse 22. We're talking about two different days, right? The, so, so far in, in chapter 6, before verse 22, that's day one. He feeds the 5,000 late in the day, late in the afternoon. That evening, 
He compels his disciples to get in the boat and to go to Capernaum. He goes up to the mountain to pray. The disciples don't want to leave. They want to stay with Jesus. Understandable. But he compels them to get in the boat to go to Capernaum. He stays up at the mountain to pray. Then he goes to them on the water and you have the events of him walking on the water. Day two is what we're seeing here. And so the crowd that's still close to Bethsaida, where the feeding of the 5,000 was, they said, well, where's Jesus? We know he didn't get in the boat with his disciples, and there's a boat still here. Where, where is he? That's seeker group number one. Capernaum is on the northwest side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a freshwater lake. And so there we get seeker group, or or in the area of the lake, remember the disciples went to Capernaum, but then there's a third spot too, which is Tiberias. We just heard about boats coming from Tiberias. That's seeker group number two. Jesus is so well known. His miracles are so spectacular. People know so much about his miracles that the word makes its, makes its way around the lake. Jesus is, his home base of operations is Capernaum. That's why he sent the disciples back to Capernaum. But the word about Jesus is out. And so people, even in Tiberias, they hear about it, they get in their boats. Let's go to where Jesus last was, at Bethsaida. So you have these two secret groups. They're in the spot where Jesus fed the 5,000, not far from Bethsaida. They can't find Jesus. Where is he? We know he didn't get in the boat with his disciples. Let's go to Capernaum because that's his home base. That's, what, that, that's the historical background that we're getting here. What John wants us to know is that the same group that Jesus fed and some others are who Jesus is going to have this conversation with, who he's going to teach in John chapter 6 in our passage today. When they get to Capernaum, They say, Jesus, how did you get here? Jesus doesn't tell them. He doesn't tell them about the five-part miracle that evening walking on the water, which they don't know about. He doesn't say anything about it because they don't need another miracle. They need to trust him. They need to submit to him. And so we read in verse 26 of chapter 6, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime you see Jesus saying truly, truly, it's listen up. Listen up. In the, the old King James, it's a verily, verily. In the Greek, it's literally amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Here Jesus just reads their minds. Because Jesus is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knew that they were seeking him for the wrong reason. His signs, the miracles didn't motivate them to submit to Jesus as Messiah. They didn't motivate them to accept Jesus as God in the flesh, as the one who provides like only God can do. No, the signs that they saw, the miracles that they saw, motivated them to view Jesus as a meal ticket. You know what a meal ticket is, right? Meal ticket, you got the ticket. I get to get in and get my chow. Jesus, you're my my chow ticket. You did a miracle of feeding us fish and bread yesterday. We're hungry again. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You come to see me because you want more bread. Just because you, your, your, your appetite of your hunger is driving you. Jesus had fed them the bread and the fish the day before to whet their spiritual appetites. Not their physical appetites, but they were blind to the spiritual realm because they live by sight and not by faith. That's why they're blind. You see the, the paradox? When we live by sight and not by faith, we're blind to the realm that is the eternal realm. We're blind to the spiritual realm. That's these people's problem. Keep reading in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the, the Father, God, has set His seal. When Jesus says don't work for the food that perishes, He's not saying it's okay to be lazy. He's not saying it's okay to not go get a job and not work. No, one of his apostles, the Apostle Paul, makes that abundantly clear in 2 Thessalonians 3, where he says, you don't work, you don't eat. It's pretty simple. Jesus isn't encouraging here laziness, nor is he saying, ignore your physical need to eat. We're going to have a potluck here soon. We're going to eat, and we're going to enjoy some nice food. Jesus isn't saying, enjoy your physical appetite to eat, nor is he saying it's okay to be lazy. Jesus' point is you're too focused on the physical realm, physical food. Physical food, though important, is only temporary. It perishes. It rots. We leave that food there for days, it's going to rot. Jesus says physical food rots, and even if it doesn't rot, even if you consume it like the bread and the fish that I gave you yesterday, it's temporary. You eat it, your body processes it, and you're hungry again. Every single day, multiple times a day, I offer you food that is eternal, Jesus says. That is eternally more important than physical food. Eternally, infinitely more important than bread and fish. I offer you food that never perishes, he says, that endures unto eternal life as this chapter unfolds, we'll see that the food that Jesus is talking about is Jesus himself, the bread of life. Jesus fed the 5,000 so that they would see that in the same way that he offers temporary physical food without cost, temporary physical sustenance that's free, in the same way he does that, he does in an even greater way offer eternal spiritual sustenance without cost. There are two essentials to sustenance. There are two essentials to physical sustenance, food and water. Here he talks about food. In in John chapter 6, he uses food to make his point about who he is. In John chapter 4, he used water to make his point about who he is. Remember John chapter 4, where Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, As they stood by the water well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus' message to the Gentile Samaritan woman and to the crowd of Israelites tracks the Old Testament, which it must. I mean, if Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, and he did, then his message 
as he stood before the people of Israel, had to track the message of God in the Old Testament perfectly. Because Jesus couldn't come and contradict what God said in the Old Testament because God is not a God of contradiction. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus' message fits perfectly with what God said in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho! That's, that's an interjection in the, in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word oi. Maybe it's a better way to translate it as hey. Hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, the prophet says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. John 4 has the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman believes that Jesus is Messiah. She does it with a relatively small miracle. Right? I mean, in John chapter 4, Jesus, just like in John chapter 6, Jesus comes to do what Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 55, to offer food that's without cost, in abundance. And the food that's being offered is a spiritual food. Jesus spoke of water, John chapter 4, bread and fish, John chapter 6, to point the people, first the Samaritan woman, then the Israelites, to how he offers the true sustenance, the forever enduring sustenance of eternal life. And so in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And she believes with a very small miracle that Jesus did. Remember the miracle in John chapter 4? They're talking and Jesus says, can you call your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, "You, you spoke it rightly. You have had five husbands. And the one you're living with today is not your husband. In other words, he did a miracle of communicating to her that he's omniscient, that he knows her personal life. And with that relatively small miracle, she says, I believe you. I believe the words you speak to me, that you are the Messiah. And she goes to the town of Sychar, the Samaritan town of Sychar. She tells them, they come, they hear the words of Jesus with zero miracles from Jesus. And they believe, the Gentile Samaritans. But the Israelites will receive miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle, spectacular miracles like feeding ten to 20,000 people instantaneously. And they will not believe. What we're seeing John do here, I mean, some will believe, but the majority will not. The Apostle John is showing us what he said at the very beginning of the book, in John chapter 1, that he came into his own and his own received him not. And we're seeing that in John chapter 6. Why does Jesus, in verse 27, say, I am the Son of Man, and the Father has set his seal upon me? What is he saying when he says that? He's saying, trust me. Trust me. You trusted me for the food yesterday. You trusted me for the fish and the bread which I gave you without cost and I gave it in abundance. Remember, there were, there were 12 baskets of leftovers from that miracle. Now trust me for the food that really matters, 
eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the Son of Man. We've seen that Son of Man is a messianic title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, where you have this description, this vision that Daniel is caught up in. And in the vision, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days on his throne. He describes him as the Ancient of Days. And and it says, one who appeared like a son of man, approached the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gave to him a kingdom, the Ancient of Days kingdom, a kingdom in which all peoples will worship. That's the title Son of Man. It's a messianic title. Messiah means the one who is chosen. Mashiach, translated into English, Christ. The one who is chosen. The one who is chosen to reveal God to humanity. The one who is chosen to reveal the way to God, and he reveals that to humanity. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, a messianic title, which is to say, trust me, I know of which I speak. The title Son of Man refers to the deity and the humanity both. Both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Now it primarily focuses on the humanity of Christ, but it's both. And so Jesus says, number one, I am the Son of Man. Number two, the Father has set his seal on upon me very very important statement that jesus makes setting one seal is the greek word sphragizo sphragizo and it means to attest or to certify when the emperor would send a letter he's going to send a letter to to the governor of wherever writes out the letter he has an an amanuensis, a a secretary, write out the letter. They close the letter up, and then they have some wax that's hot. He takes his signet ring, he puts it in the hot wax, and then he affixes it to the outside of the letter so that when the governor gets it, he knows, oh, that's the emperor's seal, that red wax with the impression there. That's the emperor's seal. I know what I'm about to read, the words that I'm about to receive have been validated. The seal validates the words. The seal authenticates the words. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the miracles that the Father has given me, because remember, Jesus is fully God, fully man, but as God, He submits to the Father because He's humble. Your God is humble. Your God is humble. It's a message for us to be humble. God, the Father, submits to His equal A great picture of of how a wife is to submit to her equal, her husband. The son, excuse me, I said that, I meant to say God the son submits to his equal, God the father. And so God the son followed and did the miracles that the father designed for the son. The son could could have done whatever he wanted, but he submits to his equal. And so the miracles that the Father gave the Son to do are the attestation. They're the valid, the, that which validates that Jesus is who He said He is. That's why He's telling these people that the Father has set His seal upon me. The Father authenticates my words through the miracles that He gave me, like feeding 5,000 people or the miraculous healings or the many others. Look at verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Work the works of God. The crowd is interested in God. 
They want God. They want to know what God wants from them. In fact, they want eternal life. But the problem is they want it on their own terms, just like they want a Messiah on their own terms. They want a political Messiah, as we've seen, not a biblical Messiah. They want a Messiah who's going to give them free stuff. And to be sure, in Messiah's kingdom, there's going to be all kinds of free stuff. No question about that. When, when Christ brings the kingdom, it's going to be prosperity galore. But before comes, before the blessing comes, we must submit. Obedience always precedes blessing. And it's the obedience part that the people choke on. It's the submission that the people choke on. The problem is they want eternal life on their own terms. Notice their question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? You see, they keyed off of Jesus' word, work, from verse 27. They misunderstand. They think that Jesus is saying, instead of working for bread, which perishes, you should work for eternal life, which endures forever. And so they say, well, Jesus, just tell me what those works are. I'll do those works, plural, because I want eternal life. Here's what happens. Their question is betraying their unbelief. They heard what they wanted to hear. Jesus didn't tell them that they had to work for eternal life. Look at verse 27. He says eternal life is a gift. Eternal life which the Son of Man will, what? Give to you. They didn't hear that part because they heard what they wanted to hear. Humanity is hopelessly prideful. And we think we have something to offer to God. Don't flatter yourself. You're not that impressive. Neither am I. We have nothing to offer to God. In fact, it's the opposite. Our efforts at righteousness, our works, are disgusting before God, are repugnant before God. The prophet Isaiah says this in very graphic terms in Isaiah 64, 6, where he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Filthy garment is the Hebrew phrase veged idim. And it literally means a menstruation garment. That is how God views my righteousnesses and your righteousnesses as repugnant. Because our righteousnesses are infected. They're infected with sin. So even when we try and do something, we bring in a sinful motivation. And the only righteousness that God is pleased with is His own. And that's why in salvation we receive God's righteousness imputed to us. That's what justification is. But it's Christ's righteousness that we receive and then God looks at us and sees His Son's righteousness. He doesn't see our sin. And so God says, pleased, I am pleased with you because you have trusted in Christ and therefore received the righteousness of perfect righteousness of Christ. And then after we're saved, we are to walk in God's good works that He created for us. And so guess who gets all the glory in those good works? God, not us. But if we're doing things and we think, oh, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for Jesus. And we really want people to say, Alex, boy, that Alex, he sure is godly. He sure is righteous. The minute I do that, that's not a good work. 
That's not a work for God. That's a work for me. So I'll get my pride stroked. And that's how we all think when we're, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, living for ourselves, walking outside of fellowship with God. So Jesus corrects their prideful misunderstanding. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. In verse 28, the people use the phrase works of God, plural. What deeds does God require of us so that we can earn, merit, deserve eternal life? Like working for somebody to get some money to to have food, to have bread. Jesus turns their idea of work on its head. There is only one work, singular, that Jesus says. Only one work that God requires of you. And it is not the work. It's not work in the way you think of work. God requires that you believe in me, Jesus says. He uses the Greek word pistuo, which means to believe, to trust, to have faith in, to rely upon. Right? Often when we tell somebody, you have to believe in Christ, they don't really know what that means. Yeah, I believe that there was a man named Christ. That's not what believe means. That's not the way of salvation. Everybody believes, even the, even the, the, um, the most, most atheistic university professor believes that there was a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago that walked the land of Canaan. Everybody believes that there was Jesus, a man named Jesus. But when Jesus says you must believe in him, pistuo, it means you must trust in him. You must rely upon him. You must have faith in him. He says, I'm the one whom the Father has sent, has sent from heaven to reveal the way to the Father. The scripture is clear that faith is not a work that merits, that earns, that deserves salvation. Salvation is a gift from God that is freely given, a gift that is non-meritorious. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, salvation does involve you doing something. You do something. You're not entirely passive in salvation. God doesn't just save everybody. Remember the old game? All all, y'all come free. You know, everybody's playing hide-and-go-seek. And then when when you're done, somebody says, All all, y'all come free. Everybody can come out. Nobody's going to get tagged. That's not the way salvation works. You have to do something. It's just what you do is not a work that earns anything from God, that merits anything from God, that deserves anything from God. What you do is faith. You trust in Him. You trust in Christ. And when you have faith in an object, the object gets all of the praise. In salvation, God gets all of the praise. When you have faith in Jesus, God gets all of the praise of the praise now there's a lot of debate over the phrase gift of god in ephesians 2 8 and 9 the debate centers around one word the word that what is that referring to in ephesians 2 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works lest any man should boast what should boast what's the that Some people approach this and say that is referring to faith. 
In other words, God gives you the faith to be able to believe in Christ. And if he doesn't give you the faith, then you're toast. If he doesn't give you the faith, then you're unable to be saved. That's the way this line of argument goes. There's a problem with that line of argument. There's a big problem. And it's actually a very simple analysis. It's a Greek grammatical analysis. Everybody loves grammar, right? Raise your hand if you love grammar. (laughs) Well, in seminary, they beat it into you. I'm told that there was an old sign in the registrar's office at Dallas Seminary that said, salvation is by grace, graduation is by works. In other words, if you want to graduate, you will learn your Greek grammar. And this is where Greek Greek grammar comes in very, very handy. Because the Greek grammar prevents a reading that would say that faith is the gift. It just doesn't work in the grammar. In Greek, you have... You know, I almost hesitate to use this word because this word is so charged now, but you have gender... Right? There's such gender dysphoria today because we've abandoned God and, we've, and therefore he leaves us to our own devices. Part of the judgment that we're under, we're under abandonment judgment, Romans 1 type judgment, where he leaves us to our own sinfulness. It's a horrible type of judgment from God, allowing us to engage in the sin that our sinful appetites want. That's why there's all this confusion about <clears throat> something as basic as gender. But anyway, that's topic for another day. In Greek, there is gender. So in Greek, <clears throat> kind of like in Spanish, right? El coche, right? The car. Well, el is masculine. It, it's not that the car is a male, but you use in Spanish and in, in, in French, <clears throat> you use masculine or feminine to describe a particular thing. Greeks, similar. But they have masculine, feminine, and neuter. And so in Greek, your pronoun, the gender of your pronoun has to match the gender of the noun. So in this case, faith is in the feminine. Faith is the Greek word, (coughs) excuse me, pisteos, and that is the Greek word tuta. Pisteus is in the feminine. Tuta is in the neuter. End of conversation. It's not a very complicated analysis in Greek grammar because your pronoun has to match the gender of your noun. Otherwise, and when I say pronoun, I don't mean he, she, them. Otherwise, if your pronoun of your, if the gender of the pronoun doesn't match the word that you're trying to link it to, its antecedent, then you've got to find another word that it matches. So we look elsewhere. We look to the word grace. Well, grace is in the feminine also. Kariti. That is in the neuter. So that can't be referring to grace, because grace is in the feminine. And that cannot be referring to faith, because faith is in the feminine. So what is that referring to? For by grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves. That in the neuter is referring to everything else in the sentence. Everything that precedes it in the sentence. 
salvation, which is by grace through faith. That's what the that is referring to. That's why it's a neuter. It's not assigned to any particular... It, it, it's, it's assigned to the concept of salvation, which is what precedes the word that in the Greek. And so the gift is salvation. That's the gift in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The old Greek scholar from a century ago said it well. A Greek scholar named A.T. Robertson, when he analyzed this passage in Ephesians 2, he said, grace is God's part and faith is our part. Simple. It's not that complicated. This fits perfectly with what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. Jesus says that eternal life is a gift that he alone gives, right? Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. God's part in salvation is grace that is freely given. Jesus says that we must believe in him. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, he's speaking Jesus. He's speaking of himself. Well, that's our part. God's part is grace. God's part in salvation is grace that is freely given. Our part in salvation, what God requires of us, is faith. So then we keep reading in verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Don't miss the absolute insolence, the total disrespect of this statement. Don't miss it. Jesus has just fed 10 to 20,000 people miraculously. They know that. This is the same group that ate the fish and the bread. And they say, what sign do you have, Jesus, so that we may believe in you? You see, everybody knows about Jesus' miracles. He's super popular. They know about the feeding of the 5,000. They know about his healing, miraculous healing of people. They know about him casting out demons. They know about the, the turning the water into wine. They know about all these amazing miracles. And they say, I want more. I want another. The reason why the judgment in the last day, and make no mistake, there is a judgment coming. The reason the judgment in the last day is as intense and horrific as is described Right? The soft and sweet, cuddly Jesus, the world, the way the world pictures Jesus. Jesus is the one who will sit on the great white throne judgment. Jesus is the one who will cast the unbeliever into the lake of fire, which Revelation, descri- Revelation 20 describes as the place of torments day and night forever. Jesus is the one who will cast them into the place that Jesus describes of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the reason why the judgment for the unbeliever is so intense forever is because unbelief is a moral decision. Unbelief is an issue of the will. Unbelief is a great offense to God. 
The Father sent Jesus, he has just said. The Father offers eternal life through Jesus, he has just said. The Father offers it as a free gift, Jesus has just said. And if they simply will accept him, will believe in him, will trust in him, they will have it. But in their unbelief, they say, no, we don't believe you unless you give us another sign. What they do in unbelief, whether it's this crowd or it's any of us in this room today or it's the world today, unbelief mocks God's grace. Refusal to believe in Jesus mocks the grace and mercy of God. And God will not be mocked ever. This is why the judgment in the last day will be so intense for the unbeliever. The crowd says, we want more miracles. We want more bread. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Verse 14 tells us that they believed that Jesus was the prophet. The prophet that Moses had prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. And so they thought, if you're greater than Moses, because that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet will come who's greater than me. The crowd thinks if you're greater than Moses, then you've got to one-up Moses. Give us something snazzy, Jesus. Dance for us. Give us something impressive. It's got to be something that's more impressive than Moses. I mean, Moses called down manna from heaven. You need to give us something that's snazzier than that. I mean, you fed 5,000. That's good. We like that. But we need something more impressive than that because Moses fed, Moses rained down manna from heaven. And he fed the people for 40 years in the wilderness. Their statements reveal their stubborn unbelief. They're quoting Psalm 78. You see in your text there that it's in all caps. When you see that in the New Testament, it's either a direct quote or it's an allusion, a a reference to an Old Testament passage. They're quoting Psalm 78. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78. There's great irony in their quote of this psalm. Because Psalm 78 is a psalm of judgment. It's a psalm of judgment against the Exodus generation for their refusal to trust God despite His many signs for them. Despite Him providing manna for them, for example. And so by citing Psalm 78, Jesus' generation was indicting itself. Psalm 78, verse 18, reads like this. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Just stop there for one second. Putting God to the test. You know what that is? That's saying, God, I know you said you're faithful, faithful, but I want you to show your faithfulness on my terms. If you don't do this for me, if I don't get this job, If I don't, if this person doesn't show me affection, if this doesn't happen and that or that doesn't happen, then you're not faithful. That's what's putting God to the test. That's 
demanding that God show his faithfulness on your terms as if you were God. This is what is being described here in verse 18. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Verse 19, then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? This is the the wilderness generation. Remember the, the, the Exodus generation. They've left Pharaoh. They've seen all those signs. They're in Pharaoh. Now they're in the wilderness and they're groaning and grumbling against God. Verse 20, behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give us bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel. Jacob and Israel is is a way of saying, just in two different ways, is saying the people, the Israelites. Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation, Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. That's the quote. That's the quote from John 6. But keep reading here in this psalm. Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. Remember, he he brought down quail for the people. Not just manna, but also quail. When he rained down meat, verse 27, when he ran down meat from meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl from the sand of the seas, then he let them, the quail, fall into the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, and their desire he gave to them. Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. It's not that the Exodus generation didn't see the works of God. It's not that they didn't believe that he did the wonderful works. They ate the manna for crying out loud. They believed that he gave them the manna. They believed that he gave them the water when he had Moses strike the rock. They believed that God gave them the quail. They ate the quail. What they didn't believe is what the miracles showed. They touched the miracles. They smelled the miracles, the Exodus generation. They ate the miracles. They digested the miracles, just like Jesus' generation but they refused to believe what the miracles showed. They showed that God was worthy of worship. They showed that God alone was worthy of their faith, their trust. They didn't trust in the Lord, the Exodus generation. Now, now, many of them were believers, but they refused to trust in what the miracles showed that God alone is worthy of worship. Jesus' generation thinks the same way. They believe that Jesus did the wonderful works. They saw them. They ate them. They smelled them. They touched, it. They, they touched them. They tasted them. All those things. But they refused to believe what Jesus' works showed, that he was trustworthy, that his words were worthy of faith, that his words were authenticated from the Father, that he came from the Father. They refused to believe in what the miracles showed. 
This is the great tragedy of John chapter 6. Please turn back there. John chapter 6, verse 32, reads like this. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, here's another, here's that formula again, verily, verily, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, you're mistaken. You're wrong. Moses didn't give you the manna out of heaven. God gave you the manna out of heaven. You elevate Moses too much, Jesus says. You ask for bread from heaven. That's what you're asking. Bread from heaven. So Jesus says, Ta-da! Here I am. Here's the bread. It's me. That's what Jesus is communicating in these two verses. The manna was just like the bread that I gave you yesterday. You talk about manna? They ate the manna, and they digested the manna, and they were done with the manna. You ate the bread that I gave you yesterday, you digested it, and you're done with it. But me, I'm the bread of life. I'm that which feeds you eternally if you will accept me, if you will pistuo me, trust in me, have faith in me. I stand before you as the enduring bread of God, the enduring eternal bread of heaven. God offers you his life through me. That's what eternal life is. You know, in our passage today, Jesus has been talking about eternal life. Eternal life is life with God. Eternal life is not about quantity of life, as we have seen many times before. Everybody's going to live forever. The believer and the unbeliever, everybody's going to live forever. Eternal life is about quality of life. Everybody's going to live forever in the sense that unbelievers are going to be raised from the dead, and they will live forever in the lake of fire with the author of death, the devil himself. The believer will also be raised to live forever with the author of life, God himself. This is quality of life. They both have quantity of life because everybody's going to live forever. But the only quality of life is living with the author of life. This is what Jesus means when he says eternal life in this conversation with the people. God offers his life through me is what Jesus is communicating, much more valuable than temporary sustenance of physical food. And God offers me not just to Israel. Notice the word here, to the world, the phrase to the world. This is why John, in John chapter 1, says Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. And so John shows that the Gentiles are more positive, are more receptive to Jesus I don't need any miracles. I don't need any miracles. The men of Sychar say in John chapter 4, I believe your words, Jesus. That's enough for me. And this is why John is memorializing here for us Jesus' words that's where Jesus says, I come as the bread of heaven, not just for you, Israel, but for the entire world, for Jews and Gentiles, everybody. In verse 33, Jesus says that he came 
from heaven. This is one of seven times that Jesus will make this statement in John chapter 6. It's a very important point. He's saying, trust me, I have personal knowledge about what I'm talking. About that which I speak. I have personal knowledge of heaven. I have personal knowledge how you can get to heaven because that's where I came from. No one else has this personal knowledge is what is communicating, is communicating when Jesus says, I was sent from heaven. No one else came from heaven to the earth. I mean, angels, but this is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus will communicate seven times. This is the first of the seven. When he says he is sent from heaven. It's a very important statement. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you have not trusted in him. Maybe you're here today and you haven't relied on him as your access to heaven. If you're here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, we want you to know that you are the enemy of God. Let me say that again. You are the enemy of God. Subject to His fierce wrath. On the death train. Rolling. Relentlessly. Towards the lake of fire. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God who casts people into the lake of fire. I'm not going to believe in a God who would do something like that. You will. You have that prerogative for now. To not believe in that God. But He will remove that prerogative from you. God loves you. God loves you though you are his enemy. That's how we all are before we come to Christ. The enemies of God, subject to his fierce wrath, damned to eternal condemnation. Because God is not a God who is kind of this kind of cool guy who says, hey, you know, I like you. It's all good. So for you, because I like you, I'm going I'm to ignore your sin. That's not God. That's our imagination of God. That's not the God who is. The God who is is holy and righteous and just. And He can't blow off our sin. His holiness demands that He judge us. But He's not just holy. He's also a God of love. Full of grace and compassion and mercy. And in His great boundless, boundless love, He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm not going to send some angel from some unknown part of the universe that no one's going to miss. I'm coming for you and you and you and you and me. Because His love is boundless. Is He a God of wrath? To be sure. Will the unbeliever who scorns His mercy spend eternity in the lake of fire? No question. But he's also a God of love. And he wants none to, be per- none to perish, none to be lost. And in his great mercy, he offers you a way out. And that way is only exclusively found in Jesus of Nazareth. 
The man who is not just man but God. The one who the Apostle Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15, the one who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the one. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Because you have no guarantee that there will be a tomorrow. Today's the day. I'm available tomorrow. If, tomorrow. After the service if you'd like to. <laughs> after the service if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We come to you as fallen, broken sinners. In awe of your mercy and your grace, break us of our rebellion. Challenge us to submit to you. Challenge us to approach you in awe and wonder. Let us not get bored with your word. Let us not get bored with your son. Draw us to you, please, Father, and challenge us to obey you and to bring glory to you. We assign to you all of the glory and the praise, and we make this prayer in the name of his majesty, the King of kings, Jesus Christ himself.